You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. chapter 13, if you don't mind. Heading back to the book of Acts today. I hope that uh, hope that uh, the book of Hosea was a blessing to you. I hope it was a challenge as well. It was certainly a challenge studying for it and preparing through the book of Hosea. Acts 13, we're going to pick right back up where we left off uh, four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And, of course, we left the book of Acts at a, at a key moment. There's a major division right at the end of chapter 12, right before chapter 13. And the emphasis from chapter 13 on through the rest of the book of Acts is, is going to be very clear. We're going to be focusing on Paul, uh, his contemporaries, uh, people like Barnabas and Timothy and even Luke, who's in the background writing and documenting all of this. And and we're going to see a major shift in the emphasis, um, not away from the gospel, not away from, of course, making disciples, but now we're going to see the emphasis of multiplication. We're going to see the emphasis of, of planting multiple churches in, in regions and areas that, that had no gospel presence whatsoever, and that's going to be the focus moving on forward. Now, there's going to be some places where uh, people like Peter are going to be back in uh, the storyline, but for the most part, uh, the emphasis is going to be on Paul for the rest of rest of our focus. I was reading um, a biography and, and devotional from Elizabeth Elliot. I don't know if you remember Elizabeth Elliot, but she was the wife of Jim Elliot. Uh, you probably maybe watched the movie End of the Spear, or maybe you haven't had an opportunity to do that. Maybe this weekend, if you're looking for a good movie and you've got a, a resource to download that or stream it, you should be able to find it online. Uh, that would be a great movie for you to watch this weekend. But her husband, Jim, four other missionary families were going down to reach the Aka Indians, Aka Natives, Aka Tribes people in the Amazon jungles of Ecuador. And um, Jim and Elizabeth met at Wheaton College, and both of them had a call uh, to missionary work. And it's an interesting story in and of itself how they came to focus on the Amazon jungle, specifically in Ecuador. Uh, while Jim and four of his friends were in that area serving, their wives were all back home. Uh, not to spoil too much of the story if you watch the movie, but they were, they were killed by the tribe they were trying to reach. And uh, amazingly, uh, later on, Jim's wife Elizabeth and their daughter, in spite of all that the tribe had done uh, to their family and the horrific pain that they all went through, uh, went on uh, to become missionaries in the same region where her husband had been killed and found many of them come to faith in Christ. Um, and there is a large presence of disciples in that particular area in Ecuador to this day. There's a fable or a little story that Elizabeth told. It's, of course, it's not, you won't find it in the Bible. I want to be very clear about that. But it's a, it's a story that certainly has biblical principles within. The story goes like this, that Jesus told his disciples one day, to pick up a stone, find a stone, and carry it with them all day long. He didn't tell them why. He didn't tell them what it was up to. Uh, but uh, to pick up a stone, carry it. Well, the, the disciples, to make it as easy as it possibly could on themselves, they chose a very small stone, obviously, kind of the, 
thing you would do, the thing I would do, is pick up a small stone. We don't really know why we're carrying this stone, but if I'm going to carry a stone all day, I want it to be a small one, maybe one I could keep in my pocket really easily. They carry this stone all day, and then later that night when uh, Jesus meets with his disciples, they've all been wondering what the stone is all about. So Jesus has them take their stones out, and the fable, the story that she, she had made up goes like this, that Jesus takes the stones that they've been carrying all day and turns them into bread. And that was their meal for the day. So now the disciples are thinking, you know, in hindsight, I should have got a much bigger stone because they carried little small pebbles, and that was all they got to eat that night. So the next day, Jesus does the same thing again. He looks at his disciples. He says, okay, guys, pick up a stone and carry it with you all day. And they go, aha, okay, now we're going to do this the right way. So they, they go and find a big old stone because they're thinking at the end of the day of carrying this big old stone around, I'm going to have a, a great meal tonight to make up for the meal that I didn't have last night. So the fable goes this way. They carry this big old stone around all day long, all with the anticipation of having a nice big meal that night when Jesus turned the stones into bread. So they go throughout the whole day carrying these stones. They gather that evening, and uh, it's time for the meal, and the disciples are anticipating a great meal. And Jesus looks at them and says, hey, guys, where are the stones? They said, well, here they are. And Jesus said, well, take the stones, go over there and just pile them up in a pile. They come back and sit down, and Jesus doesn't turn the stones into bread. Well, of course, the disciples protest. They're like, what's this all about? We carried this stone all day, and now we're not going to get something for it? And then it's at this point, Elizabeth Elliot, whoever she was teaching, would ask this question. For whom did you carry your stone today? In other words, is this about you or is this about serving the Lord? Is, is this about you getting something? And trust me when I tell you, we're all guilty of this, be included. That sometimes we, we do things for the Lord or, or do things out of either a simple burden or we do things to simply get something back. We carry our stones while hoping at the end of the day that the Lord will turn it into something that benefits us. Now, is that what the Lord has asked us to do? Has the Lord asked us to be about making sure that we're comfortable, making sure that we have all of our needs, and, and of course, expecting the Lord to make sure that all the stones we carry are turned into bread so that we're comfortable? Is that what Jesus has asked us to do as disciples? Or, or does this sound more like what Jesus asked us to do? To abandon ourselves to his mission that everything that we do, we, we do as an act of worship, and that following Jesus means taking up a cross. You know, taking up a cross doesn't sound like it's about me. <laughs> it really doesn't. I mean, taking up a cross means there's going to be some pain and suffering involved with this, and, and we may not even have the answers to the questions of why we're suffering, even though we seek them pretty regularly. As we walk through the rest of this book, uh, there's something that's going to be very, very evident that Paul and his contemporaries are going to face some incredible odds, some incredible circumstances, some incredible pain. And there may be a point along the journey, you, you're going to ask yourself the question, why in the world would Paul continue to put up with this stuff? Why would he continue to, to subject himself to such pain and suffering when it seems as though the more Paul subjects himself to that, the, the, the worse things get? By the time Paul makes himself, gets all the way to Rome, by the time he gets to Rome, he's going to have a bounty on his head. He's going to be hated by his own people, and the work is going to be very difficult. Why continue 
Well, it's because of who Paul is doing this work for. It's not for Paul. This is not about Paul getting something. That's not to say that Paul didn't struggle with that. It's not to say that Paul didn't have moments and times in his life where maybe he was even asking questions about what this is all about. I can think of of a particular point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul is struggling with the pain of his calling. But I think what we're going to see by the time we get to the end that, that Paul's life was not about Paul. And your life is not about you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your life is about something much bigger than you. It's much bigger than your comfort. It's much bigger than your bank account. It's much bigger than the home that you live in. It's much bigger than than whether you have a meal today or not. And for most of us, that's not a problem. There's going to be a seismic shift here in chapter 13. And it's going to start pretty early as we begin to look at Paul's first missionary journey. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch. And Antioch is up north of Jerusalem, right in a nice little corner, right on the edge of Asia Minor. And, and, and Barnabas went there first, and, and, and the ministry there just explodes. And there are people in Antioch from all over the world, people who had traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, ended up in Antioch, heard the gospel, and are now spreading the gospel throughout the region. And Barnabas and Paul become leaders in that church. And in a very short period of time in this church at Antioch, We have leaders, we have disciples, we have missionaries, people who are being sent out, people who are being trained and equipped with the gospel. We find here in the early part of chapter 13 that this church is doing so well that they're now beginning to send people out in areas that had no presence of the gospel in them. As a matter of fact, five men are going to be mentioned right here in the early part of chapter 13 who are now ready to be sent out and are going to be sent out. And and these, these people, these men, and women, are going to be sent out in the areas and into regions that have never heard the gospel before. And because of that, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some strife. There's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some pushback. So these people who are Christ's followers, they've got to be about something more than themselves. They've got to be about something more than their own comfort. They've got to be about something more than... They're just making sure that their life is all in in a perfect order because, as we all see with Paul's life and with Barnabas and with John Mark, Timothy, it's going to be anything but easy to do what they've been called to do. And and so it is with us. The same calling that Paul has on his life, although the specifics of that may be different, the, the, the same mandate that Paul, Timothy, Barnabas were working under is the same one we work under. It's no different. The question is, is whether we're going to devote ourselves to what God has clearly said is our mission in spite of maybe difficulty, pain, and the pushback that, that we sense sometimes and we feel we experience for being people of the cross, disciples of Jesus. The mission of the church, the mission of the church, the mission for each disciple of Christ is to proclaim the gospel. If we could just kind of will it all down, as disciples, remember we are learners of Christ followers of Christ. We want our life to look like Him. And, and as a result, we, we love differently. We talk differently. We, we lead our lives differently. And our mission as a church collectively and as individuals is to proclaim the gospel, to live the gospel. But I want you to know, there's going to be opposition to that. There will absolutely be opposition to that. Let's take a look at chapter 1, or chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, 
prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Notice this, verse 2. This, this church at Antioch, a, a fairly new church. I mean, it hasn't been around long. Uh, probably meeting in homes, um, probably uh, growing day in a day. As a matter of fact, if you go back into chapter 12 and chapter 11, you'll see that, that God was adding to their numbers daily through the ministry of the people there. More and more people were coming to faith, and they were being equipped and trained and discipled. But notice what they were doing, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. While the church is praying and fasting, as the church is doing what they know to be doing. I had someone say to me recently, Pastor, I don't know, I'm not so sure if we ought to go through another time of prayer and fasting. You know what I'm talking about, right? So let's go back in time a little bit. So we go back, if we go back to 2016, summer 2016, we spent that whole summer in prayer. You know what happened in October? Hurricane Matthew. We had another short season of prayer uh, right around the latter part of 17, right in that period. Guess what happens? Well, in less than two years, we have another hurricane, Hurricane Florence. Well, then we had a, a 40. For those of you uh, who are watching uh, online, you may not be aware of this, but uh, we, we started 40 days of prayer uh, at the earlier part of this year. The, the la and it, during that 40 days of prayer, we had fasting included in that. And, and the last weekend of, of the prayer and fasting, when everything got done, just happened to be the same weekend that the pandemic began. So I had someone say, you know, Pastor, I'm not so sure about all this prayer and fasting. I hear you. I understand. But notice what's happening in this church. They're praying and fasting. And guess what's going to happen to this church and, and to the leaders that are going to be set apart? They're going to experience some hardship, stuff worse than hurricanes and a pandemic. It's amazing that when you position yourself and put your place, put yourself in a position to hear from the Lord, when you put yourself in a position to be used of God, we cannot bring to the table expectations of though everything is going to be perfectly comfortable. Listen, this church has had anything but comfort over the last three years, four years. I mean, we, we've had all kinds of challenges that we've had to work through, but yet we've continued to pray, we've continued to worship, we've continued to be consistent in our message, nothing has changed. But you've got to understand, when you, when you enter a time of put, putting yourself in a position to be used of God, that does not mean it's going to be a comfortable journey. They've been praying, they've been fasting, and they said, you know what? We've got to set some people apart. We've got to send some people out. Because there's an entire region to the north and to the west of Antioch where no one has ever heard. And, and I believe that this church felt the weight of that. I, I believe they felt the weight of this great commission, so they lay hands on two of them, Saul, Paul, and Barnabas. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So then being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of, the God, the word of God. Now I want you to notice some key words here. I want you to back up. Back up to verse 2, it says, set apart. Later in that verse, it says, they were called. Later in that verse, it says, they were sent. In verse 4, it says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And then later in that verse 4, it says that they proclaimed the word of God. It says they were set apart, 
They were called, they were prepared, they were equipped. The Holy Spirit was leading them and filling them. They were surrendered to the Holy Spirit. They are sent out, called. You see that repetition there? It's the same for you. You were set apart the moment you put your faith in Jesus. You were set apart. You became part of the family of God. You were, you were set apart. And then, not only that, you've been called. Now, we use that term, we often think of pastors announcing their calling into the ministry, but please don't, don't think of it in such, such a narrow aspect. Every single follower of Jesus Christ has been set apart and has been called to the Great Commission. Every single person. Nobody, nobody gets a pass on this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility to the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. You don't get a pass. And not only have you been called, but the Holy Spirit desires to send you out. This church desires to send you out. We want to send people. Maybe you've never even considered going across the street or going across the world. But you've been set apart. You've been called. And now it's time to be sent. Whether that means across the yard, across the state, across the world. I would challenge you to open your heart and open your mind to the possibility that God may be calling you specifically to go somewhere around the globe. You, yes, you. Have you ever considered that? That God may be saying to you specifically, I have something you must do for the kingdom of God, and I have a place for you to go. Yeah, that could be your neighbor, but it could be who knows where. Set apart, called, sent. What did they do when they were sent? Proclaim the word of God. Proclaim the word of God. Root yourselves. Grow deep roots down in the work of God and the word of God, and then the work of God begins to flow through your life. Grow roots down into his word. And then the work begins to flow out of you. He says here that they proclaim the word of God. What did they do? They, did, they didn't go and start social ministries. They didn't go start food pantries. They didn't go start you know, any kind of social justice ministries. They simply went and proclaimed the word. Churches are going to follow. Churches are going to be planted but, what, planted, but what did they do first? They simply went community to community and proclaimed the gospel. Where did they do it? In the synagogues of the Jews. So Paul and Barnabas, and by the way, John Mark is with them also. John Mark is there to assist them. But Paul and Barnabas are, are taking on the mantle of, of, of going into this area. So what they did is they went to the coastline of Antioch, that's Salamis. Uh, actually, was, uh, they, they went to Seleucia first. Then they get on a ship. They sail over to an island called Cyprus. By the way, that's where Barnabas is from. This is Barnabas' hometown. And they land at a port city called Salamis on Cyprus, and they begin to work their way across this island. And what did they do? First, they went to the synagogues, and they begin to proclaim the good news of the gospel. They begin to tell people about Jesus. This church, Antioch, will become the base of Paul's operations all over Asia Minor. And what's interesting about this is that God is sending two of his strongest leaders in the church at Antioch to go to Cyprus. Do you find that to be odd? I mean, Think about it. Here's Paul and Barnabas who have put down roots in this church and have helped it to grow and establish and, and are reaching many people. But, but who does God put his hand on to send out two of the best leaders in the church at Antioch? But remember, that was Paul's calling all along. Paul's calling all along was not to stay at Antioch, but to go. 
and be the missionary among the Gentiles. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barisu. Now, when you look at it, it looks like Bar-Jesus, but it's actually pronounced Barisu. So, so Paul and, and Barnabas and John Mark are making their way across this island, and everywhere they go, they're, they're proclaiming the gospel, and, and they get to this other side of the island, and they run into a guy named Elymas, or Barisu. It says he's a magician. What does that mean? Well, these Roman leaders, and Cyprus was a, a province of Rome, there's a guy there who is the governor, the proconsul over this island, Cyprus. And it, it was not unusual to have these Roman leaders, these Roman governors, they would have all kinds of, of magicians and soothsayers kind of in their court. And, and these Roman leaders would, would go to these magicians and soothsayers to try to you know, get guidance about their kingdom and get guidance about decisions. And so it's not unusual for the Roman leaders to have guys like Elymas around. Notice at verse 7, it says, Barisu was, was with a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus. He was a man of intelligence. He was one of the leaders, a proconsul on the island of Cyprus. And this guy, Barisu, just happens to be part of his court, probably a guy that Paulus would go to and seek advice from. But notice why Paul and Barnabas are going to see Paulus. It says he was a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul so he could hear the word of God. Now, now get this. Here on the island of Cyprus, there is a man who is a Roman leader, a proconsul, a Gentile. Now, he may have heard about God through the, the Jews. He may have heard about God through certain avenues. But this man is wanting to know more about the message that Paul and Barnabas have. It's as though God is already working in Cyprus. It's as though God already had people that he was working in their hearts on the island of Cyprus. And that's exactly how it is in Robinson County. That God is already at work in your neighbor. God is already at work in that relative that you've been so worried about bringing Jesus up to. God's already worked there. If God is stirring your heart to bring Jesus up to this particular person, I guarantee you that God is already at work in that person's life. A guy that Barnabas and Paul had never met is seeking to hear the word of God? I find that amazing. So Paulus heard that Barnabas and Paul are on the island and they're preaching Jesus and they're proclaiming the gospel. And he says, I've got to hear what they've got to say. So he summons them and has them come to his household. And notice what happens next. Barsu, Barisu, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here you have God at work in the heart of the proconsul. You, you have God directing Paul and Barnabas to go to Cyprus. So, so God is at work here to bring about the gospel being heard by a man who wants to hear it. But I want you to notice that almost immediately, this Jewish magician, Barisu, opposed them. And notice what he does. He seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So this man is actively opposing 
what God is doing in Cyprus, not only through Paul and Barnabas, but what God is doing in the heart of this governor. This man is actively working against him. There is something we have got to get our arms around as a church and as disciples. I, honestly, I think we get so busy in the day-to-day of our routines. We get so focused on working and, and doing the things that we love to do. We get so focused on a pandemic. We get so focused on politics that we miss a big, big, big element of what Scripture teaches us, and that is, is that spiritual warfare is a reality. It's a reality. There are things in your life that you are discounting as simply coincidence. There are things in your life that has happened over the last eight months that that you and your spouse or you and your kids or you and your best friend have sat around and thought, you know, that, that was really ironic that that happened now. You know, that was really a coincidence that that happened. Can I say to you, can I offer to you that it may not be a coincidence at all, that it may be the very work of demonic forces in your life? And you go, whoa, wait a minute, Pastor. Whoa, whoa, whoa work of demonic forces? That sounds kind of fanciful. Sounds almost mythological. Did you know that the Bible as a whole, especially the New Testament, talks about spiritual warfare over and over and over again? Listen, you may be of the opinion that that Satan and demons are are like like this imagery for evil, that they're not real. Can Can I just say to you, that if that's the position you take, you are in complete contradiction with what the Bible teaches. That Satan is very much real. Demons are very much real. And that they are in active opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they are actively engaging and trying to tear down not only the church of Jesus Christ that stands upon the gospel, but every disciple of Jesus Christ. That your home is under attack, your marriage is under attack, your kids are under attack. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas runs into almost immediately. What are they doing? They're doing what God has called them to do. Every time you step out and do what God has called you to do, there's going to be an opposition to that, and it comes directly from the realm of darkness. Now, do you think it's a coincidence? Do you think it's a coincidence that Barasu just happens to be at this place, at this time, to divert attention away from the gospel? I don't think that's a coincidence at all. It says he opposed them. So it's not like it's not like Barris who just disagrees with Paul and Barnabas. Certainly he does. But he is in opposition to Paul and Barnabas in their message. Notice how Paul responds. And I'll just tell you that the way Paul's going to respond here is not going to be acceptable to our pluralistic society that says, all truth claims are equally valid. It's not going to be very well accepted that Paul is not going to make a stand. So just, to, just so we know, in our pluralistic society where it says everybody is correct, everybody is true, how Paul is getting ready to respond here, if, if you take that position, you're not going to like it very much. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, that means that, that Paul is completely under the control of the Holy Spirit. Paul sees this for what it really is. He looked intently at him, looked him eyeball to eyeball. I would say face to face. I would say Paul is like right up in Barisu's business at this point. And listen to what he says. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, 
Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Wow. It seems like Paul understands spiritual warfare. It seems like Paul understands that there's more going on here than just a set of coincidences where this guy who says he's a magician, who has some authority with the proconsul, it seems as though Paul sees this for what it really is. It's a spiritual attack. I mean, why else would Paul call him the son of the devil? Paul says, you're an enemy of all righteousness. Do you realize that there are people who are, who are being influenced, motivated by darkness, who are in direct opposition to what is right? I don't think you have to watch the news very long to pick up on that theme. What you, what you know, what you know to be right and wrong, even if you're lost, even if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you have an understanding that there are some things that are just absolutely wrong and there are things that are right. And you have a culture that is telling you that, that right is wrong and, and wrong is right. And, and, and you know, even, even as a lost person, even as someone who's never come to faith, you know that there's something not right. You know that something is seriously wrong. Paul, Paul says that Barasu not only opposed them, he was an enemy of righteousness, an enemy of what is right. Not only that, he is full of deceit. He is filled with villainy. That, those two words together paint this picture of a guy who, who, is, who is looking to stir things up. He, he has a plan, and he's working his plan. In other words, he's a guy that wants to disrupt. He wants to tear down. Paul says that he is making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Are there people today who are intentionally distorting the message of the Bible? I mean, you don't have to look far on social media to find that. That, that what the Bible says is true and real, righteous. You don't have to look very far to see that being turned into something that is wrong, untrue, and unrighteous. That the, even the gospel message itself is being distorted. That that following Jesus or surrendering to Jesus is somehow hidden behind some kind, of, some kind of mask of just be a better person. Verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. You know what happened? Supernaturally, God struck Barasu with blindness. Isn't it interesting that, that not only was he spiritually blind, calling right wrong and wrong right, not only was he, was he actively opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he, he, is, he is spiritually blind, so God says, okay, I'm going to blind you physically. So now he's both spiritually blind and physically blind. Do you know how to recognize opposition? Do you, know how to, do you know how to recognize spiritual warfare? Because if we're all kind of in a malaise, if, if we're all focused on COVID-19 and, and politics and, and news and all this going on in the world, and, and by the way, if, if you're consumed with this stuff, if you're sitting in front of your TV all day long consuming all this, can I, can I encourage you to take a break? I, I promise you, if you'll take a break, you'll find some joy and peace again. 
But, but can, you, can you recognize spiritual warfare? I, I think Paul and how he responds to Barasu in this, in this text gives us some insight. The first thing you got to recognize is there's two realms of reality here. There, there are two realms of reality that you must understand, grasp, wrap your arms around. The Bible speaks about it over and over and over again. And that is, there's a spiritual realm, and then there's a physical realm that you and I live in right now. This physical realm, this, this realm that we can touch and feel and experience collectively, our world in which we live, we, we would never deny that physical reality. We live in this world, and, and as such, we know that it's real, that it's here. But, but there is an equally true, an equally existent realm called the spiritual realm that is just as true and just as real as the arm and the fingers on the end of your hand. It's just that real. The Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, that we're going we're gonna to be part of that realm one day, that life doesn't end at death, that, that the soul spirit is going to depart from this body, the body is going to go back to the ground. Where is that soul spirit going? Well, it's going to another realm, and that realm is just as real. As a matter of fact, I would offer to you that that realm is the most realest place you'll ever be, the presence of God and all of his glory. For those who put their faith in Jesus, it's going to be a glorious, glorious transition. But there's a spiritual realm. Now, in that realm, there are angels. Yes, there are angels, not like the ones you see at the Lifeway store online, but that's another sermon for another day. And there are demons. And there is Satan. The Bible describes him and, and his army as walking to and fro upon the earth, seeking to deceive, destroy. So there is a spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm is just as real as the stage I stand on right now and the chair you sit in at home, it's just as real. The other principle you need to understand is these two are at war. Specifically, those who follow Christ are at outright war with the demons and Satan of darkness. And there will be opposition and push back upon your commitment to following Jesus. So, so please get this. There are two realms, the physical realm, the spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, towards this physical realm, for those people who put their faith in Jesus, there is constant, constant, unrelenting war. Maybe when you put your faith in Jesus, you thought it was just going to be an easy walk. Everything that I've been able to read in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, tells me that we are at war. We see the manifestations of this kingdom, right? We see the manifestations of, of that spiritual realm, especially the darkness in that spiritual realm. And those manifestations become very clear that there is direct opposition to not only God's people, God's word, New Testament church. You see it played out in your life. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. You knew I had to go here, right? Ephesians 6. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare, then the preeminent text about warfare is Ephesians 6. I won't have time to read it all, and there's two couple of verses here I want you to see. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul's wrapping up his letter to the church at Ephesus, one of the stronger churches that Paul planted. We'll take a look at that church when we get a little further into Acts. Acts 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes, Greek words schemata, plans, devious plans of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Paul's talking about two realms here, isn't he? He's talking about the physical realm, flesh, blood. Uh, Our fight is not with flesh and blood. Oftentimes we get focused on the person. We get we get we we actually go after the person. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now there is all kinds of theology and doctrine we could dive in on that, but I just want to get this across. Two realms physical, spiritual, and there is a war that is going on from the spiritual realm attacking the physical realm and everything that you believe, everything that you hold dear as a follower of Jesus is under attack. Go back to Acts. So how can we recognize spiritual warfare? Let's look at it quickly. Go back to what Paul says to Barasu. First of all, he says to Barasu, he says, you are an enemy of righteousness. You are an enemy of what is right and wrong. Let me just throw out one here of where right has now been called wrong and wrong has now been called right. January 10th of this year, we crossed a horrible, horrible milestone as a country. January 10th of this year, we passed a horrible milestone. You know what that was? January of this year, 61 million abortions since 1973. 61 million children have been put to death in the abortion mills, Planned Parenthood. As a person who firmly believes that life begins at conception, can we not agree that This is an enemy of righteousness. That life, precious at conception, bearing the image of God, given that value at conception, that we as a country are in a serious, serious dark place where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. Just a few months ago, it was being debated in a state just north of us, that after a child is born, does the parent have the right to put the child to death after the child has been born? There was a debate about that for weeks and weeks. It's still ongoing. That is the child really a child? How do we recognize spiritual warfare? Well, that which is opposed to what is right. Secondly, Paul says, look for deceit and reckless mischief. Reckless mischief, this desire to just tear down and destroy and do whatever we want to do out of our own desires, out of our own flesh with no real reasoning behind it, but a a desire to deceive people, to lead them astray, engage in reckless mischief. That's exactly what Barasu was doing. Paul says that's a good way to know that you're dealing with spiritual warfare. Third, a distortion 
of the truth to mislead, a distortion of the truth. You see, Barisu not only wanted to shut Paul and Barnabas down, no doubt Barisu had his own story, his own message that he wanted to teach. And no doubt he had been teaching the proconsul that for years, and he didn't want anything to conflict with that. So he's willing to not only oppose it and shut it down, but he's willing to provide another message, and no doubt he did. A message of distorted truth. Do we have some distorted truth? Sir, we do. Even within the churches, a truth that is no truth at all says that as long as you be a good person, as long as you get baptized, as long as you have your membership at the church role, as long as you give money, as long as you go to Sunday school, as long as you participate, as long as you serve on a committee, on and on and on, then you're all right with God. And the gospel never really comes up. The gospel says it's none of those works. It's surrender and faith in Jesus Christ through repentance, turning your heart, changing your mind about your sin. That's what the gospel says. The gospel says giving up rights to your life, not taking over more of your life, but giving up your life for something greater than yourself. That's the gospel. But even, dare I say, even in Baptist churches, we have turned it into a works-based salvation. If you do enough checking the boxes, you do enough good things, then you're okay. You're not okay. A distortion of the truth. Social gospel. Well, we need to give out more food. We need to do more social active things. We need, we need, to, be, we need to be at our meeting needs. Those things are great, and that's how we share the love of Jesus. But the gospel has got to be part of that conversation. Fourth, a silencing of those who proclaim truth. We've begun to see here in our own country the attempts to silence those who proclaim the truth of the gospel. We now have social platforms and social media, even search engines that are actively shutting down the proclamation of the truth of the gospel because it disagrees with the public opinion. I suspect I'm not a prophet, don't claim to be, but I suspect that in the days ahead that might get worse. A silencing of those who proclaim truth. Is that a way to pick up on possibly that there is spiritual warfare? Absolutely. Finally, turning people away from faith and offering them other things to believe. Just believe in yourself. You have God within you. You're a good person. And whatever God you believe in and whatever you want to participate in, it's okay. You just be you. You live your life. You live, have you heard this before? You live your truth. Even though your truth contradicts what we know to be true. If a father sees someone trying to push drugs on his son, he will not have a discussion with the, with the drug pusher about the pros and cons of heroin, will he? If a dad sees a drug seller trying to sell heroin to his son, he's not going to pull the guy off and have a discussion about the pros and cons of heroin use, is he? No, he, he's going to get involved. He's going to shut that down. He will forcibly intervene if he needs to. A mother sees her daughter accept a piece of candy from a stranger. She's not going to sit down and have a conversation about her views on the subject and what is true and what is not true. You know what she's going to do? She's going to knock that piece of candy out of her hand, and they're going to get away from that stranger immediately without even thinking about it. A hotel employee notices a fire in a room, but there's no fire alarm. Now, the employee at the hotel may think, you know, if I bang on all these people's doors and wake them up in the middle of the night, they're not going to be too happy about that. 
Does he even consider that? No. He goes down the hallway and he knocks on the doors saying there's a fire. Get out of your room. He doesn't even think about it. Why then are we so slow to confront and accept the reality of spiritual warfare? Not only accept this, the reality of it, but to confront that? Why, why are we second-guessing guessing as followers of Jesus who know what the Word says, knows what is right and wrong, why are we so reluctant to engage? Because I would offer to you that in these three examples, these obviously ludicrous examples, there's no hesitation to step in and act because we know the danger inherent in those three things. But yet, it's almost as like we, we kind of glaze over when we know that there's a spiritual attack upon our children and upon our marriage and our opponents. It's almost like we, we try to reconcile it out or we try to push it away or we try to imagine that it doesn't exist when in the fact that that spiritual warfare is just as real as the heroine and the hotel employee, all three of those situations, the spiritual warfare is just as real. Will we not engage? Let me ask you a question. For whom did you carry your stone today? Who are you going to carry that stone for tomorrow? Is it going to be you carrying your stone for you to make sure that everybody's happy and make sure that everybody accepts you and you're worried more about what people think? Are you carrying that stone for you? Or are you taking up a cross for Jesus? Because I can guarantee you this. You've taken up a cross to follow Jesus. There is shame, there's pain involved with following Jesus. The world needs to see people like Paul and Barnabas who were carrying their stones for someone else other than themselves. We're not concerned about public opinion. They were more concerned about God's calling upon their life, their set-apartness, and what the Holy Spirit was telling them to do. What about you? Father in heaven, spiritual warfare is a reality. It's not a fable. Satan and demons, they're not something that come out of an author's mind somewhere, but they're the reality of the world we live in. And Father, those who've been set apart, called, you've been trying to send, Father, they're going to face hardship and oppression and pushback from, from those they try to bring the gospel to. Father, we, we must accept that as your followers. We, we must accept the fact that, that we... As your people called to go in your name, we must face the reality that there is a war that is raging. And in war, there is pain. In war, there is no focus on comfort. Father, we must accept that by taking up a cross, surrendering our life, we can no longer be focused on self-preservation. Father, we must fight the good fight. We must love as we've been loved. We must proclaim the truth, even if it offends. And we must stand upon your word. Father, for the ones who've never put their faith in you, Father, they are completely overtaken by darkness. Lord, your word says that by the hand of Paul, it says that we were dead in our sins. No spiritual life whatsoever. So Father, there are those who've never been born again, are in the enemy camp. Father, deliver them, call them, set them apart, and send them to proclaim your word. May that happen in this moment of worship. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.